Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski will interview John J. Kennedy, president of the Jeweler Security Alliance. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, editor-in-chief of JCK and JCK Online in Los Angeles. And this is Rob Bates, news director of JCK and JCK Online here in New York City. And in the studio with me is a legend of the industry, John Kennedy, president of the Jewelers Security Alliance. And you've been there for 28 years, correct? That's correct. 28 years, which is amazing. So I guess my first question and how we, we, we like to find out about people's backgrounds. You know, I've known you for a lot of years, and but I never really knew how you got into being at the JSA. Uh, I know you had a bit of a legal background, but you want to talk about how you came to be at the Jewelers Security Alliance? Sure. I'm an attorney, and uh, my immediate past job was as the assistant commissioner of the New York City Department of Investigation. And in that role, you had to live in New York City. And I had, uh, at that time, my wife and I had two small children in private school, and that wasn't working out too well. So we decided we want to move to the suburbs. I needed a new job. So I looked around and had to be in crime or related to crime because that was my specialty and that was my, uh, you know, what I knew. So I interviewed a JSA. Uh, I didn't know anything about it. and I don't know anything about the industry. And uh, Jim White, who was my predecessor, he interviewed me. And it turned out we went to the same high school, college, and law school, exactly the same. Wow, that's weird. I, I didn't know Wait that. a minute. That's not wow. all. And he, he grew up in the parish, the Roman Catholic parish, in which my kids were baptized. Wow. So I figured I had the job the minute I walked in and had the interview. That's good. Wow. That's that's great. And so what? So your background wasn't criminal law, would you say? No, no. My background was always criminal law. I was also the chairman of a department of criminal justice at a college in New Jersey uh, for a number of years. And uh, so my specialty has always been in crime. And it's always been, not that JSA is necessarily in this realm, but it's kind of been in the law enforcement? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, would you absolutely. Say, would you say it is? Yeah, okay. No, absolutely. And uh, I've never been a prosecutor, and I have never been a police person or an FBI agent, but my whole career has been in crime prevention and law enforcement area. Right. So you've been doing this 28 years. So like, what's your day like? Like when you come in, what is the most uh, important thing? Especially like if you hear about a crime, like what do you need to, what do you do and what does that kind of entail as far as your, what your organization does? Okay. Well, we have a staff too. I mean, we have, I, I work with several other people uh, who have law enforcement experience and- uh, And how, how many people work there? Uh, we're a total of five. Right. Okay. And does everybody have law enforcement experience? No. I mean, you know, the, there's an administrative person that does not. Mm-hmm. And But everybody else, we have a uh, former sergeant, detective sergeant with the NYPD. We have a graduate of John Jay who's been with us for five years. John Jay College of Criminal Justice is mm-hmm. in, in New York City. And then we have a, a young intern who is also from John Jay College of Criminal Justice. So they have some knowledge or experience in the issue. Right. So and, you're asked what, when I come in in the morning. I mean, I may not, I will, I will look at the emails first. That's actually it. But I've done that the night before too, or maybe on the train even, uh, to see what's new, what's happening, what's hot in terms of crime. 
I may not be the one that pursues either talking to the police or the victims in those cases, but I will review them, and at some point during the day, if they're important cases, we'll discuss them among the staff and see if we can be of help. Can we help the investigating officer by giving him maybe some advice or information about gangs or other suspects that look similar to the uh, case in, at hand, uh, or just helping him? I mean, oftentimes the police person won't know anything about jewelry crime. And we will give him information about certificates, you know, from GIA or about watch serial numbers or whatever it may be. We'll give them information to help in their investigation. The main thing is the networking that we provide. We have a huge database of crime uh, and we can, uh, and pictures of suspects. So we can help that police person identify who the criminal was in any given uh, circumstance. And your organization is is pretty old, right? And I, I think it's a little after JCK, but it's, it's... Yes, I have a very interesting story about this. Okay, we're, sure. We're 1883. Right. That's when we were founded, 1883. The first secretary of JSA was Daniel Hopkinson, who was ah, the yes. publisher <laughs> of Jewelers Circular. You have to be a JCK geek to know that name. The publisher of the <laughs> Jewelers Circular was the so our partnership with JCK goes back to 1883 to to its founding yes right right exactly. well I remember when we were looking through the archives for our, our anniversary issue yeah that there was not to mention just copious amounts of copy devoted to crimes of the day which were all really interesting crimes but not that dissimilar from what we see now just you know more advanced technologically but yeah, the fact that this relationship between JSA and JCK really does span nearly a century and a half. It's amazing. Cool. Has, has the mission of the group changed in any way? Our mission has not changed since we were founded. It's to prevent crime in the jewelry industry. And we very, very narrowly stick to our mission. We don't do a lot of member benefits. We don't do other issues. We don't get involved in issues that are not our business uh, and our expertise. One more thing about the 1883 business. The first full-time executive director or as president of the JSA was in 1897. And I'm the fourth since 1897. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh my word. So how, how long was James White there? Over 30 years. Wow. And you're getting close? You're, you're... Well, I hope that many more years. <laughs> yeah. No, but I'm getting 28. Yeah, almost. 28. That's, yeah. that's, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. That is. Yeah. That obviously, it's a... So what, what is it that has kept you and all your predecessors there for so long? What is it that attracts you to this industry and this job in particular? Well, it's a fascinating job in terms of jewelry crime. And uh, also, we have tremendous support from the board. The board both supports us because they so believe in the mission, and the whole industry supports us because they believe in the mission. But also, the subject matter is a little off the, the expertise of people in the industry. In other words, everybody in the industry wants to talk about Jewelers Vigilance Committee and their issues, or wants to talk about, you know, whoever conflict diamonds or whatever. But in terms of crime, they kind of defer to us. So it is a, a job that gives you great satisfaction and that you can make an impact, uh, I think, uh, in doing it. But it's still a relatively, there's no other JSA in the world, right? Well, actually, we cooperate and we helped found Jewelers Vigilance Canada, right. which recently merged with the Cal Canadian Jewelers Association, and it now was under the aegis of the uh, Canadian Jewelers Association. They are the only organization that does exactly or similar to what we do. Much smaller, of course, in terms of scale, but they do what we do. And you, you just had a huge milestone uh, last year that there was uh, zero jewelers killed. 
and in the commission of a crime. As far as you know, is that the first time ever or the first time that you've been keeping records or? We, we looked the statistics and we looked the records and we, we don't, you know, they only go back so far. The, the uh, substantial records we have really go back to the early 80s, which my predecessor Jim White did and, you know, began. Before that, it's just sketchy. But in the 80s, there were as many as 47 jewelers killed in the United States. Yeah, it's amazing. In one year. In the oh, year wow. before I came in, in 91, there were 37 killed in the United States. Uh, and then it's dwindled since then. What we want to make sure is that people don't become complacent and think that because things are much safer, which they are, it's not only the, the homicides. It's in addition, the dollar losses over the last, say, 20 years were about a quarter of the dollar losses that there were 20 years ago. Now, that can't make people complacent because we still get 1,500 crimes a year. And, uh, you know, you can be a victim uh, tomorrow. But it is, you know, we try to be very humble at JSA. We try to be very humble. But a lot of this reduction is due to our work decreasing crime. Right. I mean, I, I don't know if there's a national crime database. Like, I don't know if it works, but how, how that kind of thing works. But if you're, let's say, a police officer in one town and you may not know that there's been kind of a string of jewelry thefts and that there's the same MO and there's the same things to look at. And I think that's kind of what you do, right? You kind of piece it all together. Right. We are the intelligence source on jewelry crime for law enforcement in the United States. The FBI's website, the headquarters website, refers law enforcement people to us to get information about jewelry crime because they don't keep, you don't keep it by jewelry crime. You keep it by robbery and you keep it by theft. Right. Keep it by other categories. But in terms of keeping it by, you know, uh, jewelry crime, we're the only ones who do that. Plus, we have information not only about crimes. We have information about casings, about suspects, about attempts and other things which may never have made it into any law enforcement uh, databases ever. Right. And I always think it's weird how there's this kind of like these spurts of crime, like there was this kind of power cutting, these power cord cuts. And uh, I guess it's possible that a gang came up with this or that one person came up with the idea and somebody uh, thought, well, that's a cool idea. I'll do it over here. I mean, do people understand how these kind of these things kind of become big for a while, then kind of die down, then something else comes out or? You know, as you describe it, that's exactly what happens, is that a gang will get will get working with a particular M.O., and they may do multiple crimes until they're stopped. And, and then they'll be put in jail for a while, they'll get out, and then they'll probably start doing the same thing again. They'll move all over the United States doing their work until they're stopped. Now, one of the things that's a little disturbing about this is odds are these gangs couldn't do what they do unless somebody in the industry helped them by fencing or by, you know, taking their stuff and perhaps not asking questions. But chances are it's 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 more deliberate. Obviously, that has to be a big part of this. The fact that there are, unfortunately, people in this industry who let this stuff go on. I mean, we deal with fences. I mean, we're very yeah. we're very active in terms of dealing with fences, which is fences are very hard cases to make. But you have there are like in any industry, there are bad apples who are buying or even commissioning crimes, buying product or commissioning crimes and gangs to do to go out there and do stuff. But it's a small, very small number, a very small percentage. You know, it, it's it's interesting that some branded watches, for example, that have been taken, you know, and, and sometimes as large numbers of branded watches are taken, they never show up again. Now, somebody's repairing them, somebody's getting parts for them, somebody's doing something for them, 
And we believe that a lot of those have been shipped abroad. And they're, they're, that they're being sold abroad. Sold abroad. And many times they're found abroad. Another weird thing is that the, the crooks tend to, I don't know if they read the trade publications or whatever, but they tend to follow the trends, right? So right now Rolex is super hot. So there's this whole big thing about people stealing Rolexes, right? And diamonds are kind of hot and people are stealing diamonds. Uh, yes, there's no question that they read the trades, that they have been caught, frankly, with red books in their trunks, you know, red books yeah, JBT. from JBT Red JBT Books. Red books yeah. They've been caught with other products. They know when the shows are. They, they follow the shows. They know when they occur. Uh, they hit the shows. A number of criminals have been caught with JSA bulletins on their person, which is very odd. And we've also had a case in California where the criminals hit the safe and then wrote on the side of the safe, like, ha, 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 JSA. Wow. <laughs> God. That's like a shout wow. out. Obviously, you have dumb criminals, too, but you have a lot of smart criminals who do research and find out this stuff. Wow. That's, that's amazing. And so you talk about being a digital organization and cybercrime is, is obviously a hot topic. And you said it's increasing in the industry. What are the things you've noticed as far as that? The types of cybercrime we see against the jewelry industry have been what we would characterize as cyber-enabled crime. In other words, it's not people from China hacking into uh, some jewelry chain and, and uh, stealing their information and finding out where stuff is or, or stuff like that. It's not that. It's through human contact of some sort, either through emails or through telephone calls or through basically those two ways, they will attempt to get information about a firm, about a firm's clients about a firm's product, a firm's shipping procedures, who's ahead of the shipping department. Try to get information like this. They'll call repeatedly trying to strike up a relationship with someone at the firm and then commit some sort of a fraud. In other words, have product sent to a certain location and they'll be impersonating a, regular, a real client. So it's cybercrime, it's, it's enabled by email and whatnot, but it's not like hacking. As right, it were. right. So that's not, but I, I haven't the, seen much of that yet. But there is, I would assume, fraud and credit card fraud a goes lot. on. Yeah. There's a lot of this fraud, and the the fraud will be primarily against the manufacturers and the you know and the watch companies to send product to somebody, and that turns out to be fraudulent. Yeah. Yikes! I was just going to ask if you deal a lot with crimes that are committed by jewelers, you know, shady jewelers. No, we we do. If if it's you know a lot of that, there's a uh, you know a line that we deal with with. JVC that depends on what the nature of the crime is. You know, the, all the things, money laundering and all that, we really leave to JVC. But sometimes these things are inherently related to some external crime, and then it'll be part of the whole case. So we will be involved with it. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews is what helps make them possible. Help spread the word. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And now back to the show. Do you ever talk to the criminals? I know you talk to law enforcement at all, but have you ever talked to criminals and tried to get their, I don't want to say perspective, but on, on how they look at these things? Or We've gotten transcripts and reports from uh, law enforcement people who have interviewed them, basically, and when they're giving proffers, when they're going for a sentence, uh, and we have heard information about how they case places and uh, how they perform their, uh, their crimes. Uh, personally, I haven't interviewed any jewelry crime criminals in that regard, but right. we've had many reports. Okay, so let's talk about a, a subject uh, a lot of people uh, gets a lot of passion, which is uh, guns. Uh, you guys have said pretty consistently you think jewelers should not have guns in their stores, that you think it's dangerous. 
but obviously plenty do. There was a thread on a on a message board where people were showing off their guns. Can you explain, I mean, you understand the, the legitimate security fears of, of these people. Can you explain why you think it's a mistake for them to have a gun? Yes. I mean, they are, you know, they can have guns. I mean, in terms of they can legally have guns, and many of them do, as long as they're licensed. I want to make sure they're licensed guns and they're trained. And it is the recommendation by overwhelmingly, way overwhelmingly, of law enforcement and the FBI throughout the United States that retailers do not have guns in the store. What happens is that criminals who come in who are armed have a complete advantage over you in that you're always in second place. They know what they're doing. They have their guns. Sometimes their guns are out. And by the time you get your gun, you can be shot. You can be killed. Or even more horrendously, you can wind up in a small space in a 2,000-square-foot store. You wind up killing an innocent person. I've had people over the years, over my time here, I've had people who wound up killing their spouse. Wow. who was working in the store, oh, having their one of their sons killed in the store, oh, my God. Uh, killing a bystander who was walking by, and other things that have happened. Believe me, product is important, but get insurance, and your insurance should cover you. And, and in most cases, or a lot of cases, where somebody is killed in one of these incidents, it is because they resisted, correct? Or because they... Almost 100%. Like way in the 99s, that's because resistance is what brings on the violence on the part of the people who are conducting the crime. 99% of the cases, more than 99%. I mean, part of what we do is jeweler education, and which is very important, jeweler education. That's, that's the other piece of the equation, not only working with law enforcement, but jeweler education. And I think that somehow part of the message has gone in. We, you know, I get occasional, not too often, but occasionally we get very inflammatory responses about guns. I try to answer them in calm tones, but I do not carry on a lengthy dialogue about these things. And a lot of people, I would assume, most of these people are not necessarily trained. They just have a gun. Big problem. Uh, People, you know, we know the ease of obtaining guns in the United States, and people who have really no business having a gun have it and they think that they're protected and uh, believe me they're not so is there one big mistake that you see jewelers making or uh, several big mistakes that you know if if a jeweler's listening right now is there one or two kind of takeaways that you can give them to to keep themselves safer and their stores safer yeah i mean we'll start the first one you just said was not resisting to in a violent crime or a robbery that's certainly one of the main things i would advise if to go down different different crimes, to go down theft crimes, for example, grab and runs and sneak thefts, grab and runs, you're showing too much product at one time. In other words, you, you take out, you show the person two or three watches and they run with the two or three watches. Show them one piece at a time and keep the rest away, locked up in the showcase until they ask for another piece. I know it's hard, but otherwise you wind up losing product. Also, keep your showcases locked. This would apply to sneak thefts and other types of thefts. Keep your showcases locked except when you're actually taking product out or putting it back. We see all the time that people during a presentation will leave the showcases unlocked and criminals working in consort, one, maybe two of them there, one will distract them and the other will put his hand in the, or her hand in the showcase and take product. So there's both physical security things and procedures that you can follow, I think, that are important. And I've heard a new kind of weird technological solutions like I think there's something they, they they spray the person and that they can that spray can be used to identify them uh, is there anything that you think is maybe perhaps 
what do you think of that? And also, anything you think is can be interesting on the horizon, perhaps? Well, the there is a DNA spray that um, will be able to say that is unique to your product. If the person is then captured at some point, or the product is found at some point, one that's interesting is facial recognition. We've had a couple of uh, suggestions about facial recognition, and uh, it's a very controversial area. In the U.S., it has been banned by certain law enforcement agencies and by certain towns, and I think it is really a can of worms for retailers to think about facial recognition. Your clientele may not like, they may not like their privacy invaded in this way, that you're keeping information about them or have information, even if you say you're not keeping it. Uh, what database do you use to match that against to see who's the criminal or who's not the criminal? Where do you get it? I think that in the world of privacy and the way the world is moving today in terms of how the public thinks about privacy, I think that you better be, as a retailer, very, very careful about this issue. Thank you, John. Thank you for all the work you do keeping uh, the industry safe. Thank you so much, John. Always such a pleasure to hear your stories and your, your takeaways. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. 